Are you struggling to get your project off the ground? Is the term research a dirty word? Need help finding more resources? Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of the Center for Nursing Inquiry podcast. I am Nadine Rosenblum, your nursing inquiry coordinator. And with me today is Maddie Whalen, our evidence-based practice coordinator. Hi, Maddie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So I have asked Maddie to come and join me today to talk about um, the newly, the new edition, the 2022 fourth edition of the Johns Hopkins Evidence-Based Practice for Nurses and Healthcare Professionals Model and Guidelines, because some of the tools have been updated along with other parts of the book. And so this time, we're going to talk about the Individual Evidence Summary Tool, also known as Appendix G. So, Maddie, can you tell us about this particular item? For sure. So, just as a sort of overall um, context, we are still in the evidence phase of the TET process, and we're using our Appendix G either directly after or in conjunction with our article appraisals, which use our Appendix E or our Appendix F, our research or non-research evidence appraisal tools. And so this tool is a place to collate all of the information from the applicable articles so the team is able to see it all in one convenient place so that they are able to then go on to the next step, which is synthesizing the information from the summary of each of the articles. Okay. So instead of a pile of papers, you can condense everything onto this one handy-dandy chart. Yes. And if everyone has done their their job, it should be a very succinct um, document that has all the pertinent information that you need so you're not paging through dozens of sheets of paper to try and figure out what your synthesis is. That sounds like a smart tool to have and use. For sure. Okay. So I see this is a three-page tool, and the first page is our table, and it's showing us that we're in the summary section um, of your process, and the EVP question right up there on top, so just to remind yourself and the team about what the EVP question is that you're looking at, but then we've also got several columns here, and I want to go ask you about these columns, so reviewer names, why do we, why does it matter which reviewer um, did which article? So this is important for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that we ideally have at least two people looking at every article. And so it'll be important for me to put my name in there so that I am able to speak to whoever else was also reviewing the article so we can come to consensus about all of the items that we want to put in the table. It's also helpful to have the name of the reviewer provided so that once we actually get to the step where the whole team is together, and looking at this table, if there's any follow-up questions, we know who to go back to. So it's always kind of difficult when you're managing a whole team. I think everyone thinks back to school when we had our group work and how everyone hates group work because you're doing so much coordination and logistics of just trying to get the project completed. But in EVP, we really do try and always do group work, and it's really helpful for tracking purposes to know who read which article. So in the beginning, maybe each reviewer has their own one of these. And then you yeah. bring them and put them all together? Yeah, so what can be really helpful is have each person fill them out as they go along. And then let's say both you and I are reading an article together, we can compare notes and usually between the two of us and we can decide on the important information that actually needs to be included on the team's Appendix G. Gotcha, okay. 
And so moving on to the next column is article number. What is an article number and what does that mean? So this is, uh, again, a good tracking mechanism. So there's different ways that people um, are tracking articles to get to this part of the process. Um, some people use an Excel spreadsheet. Some people use um, a software program um, to do the screening. Sometimes there's different ones called Abstracker or Covidence, just to name a few. And having the article number makes it just a little bit easier to split back and forth between all the tools so that especially when you're starting to put together your synthesis, instead of having to write out a 10-author citation, you can just put the number of the article and so you're able to refer back to your source material a little bit easier. One thing to keep in mind, and that I've seen um, mess people up a little bit, is if they have their articles in an Excel sheet, make sure you're using the article number that you've assigned to each row versus the row number. So usually in an article table, you're not starting from the very, very top, and so the article number and the row number don't correspond. So just make sure the team is on the same page about if you're using a designated number that's been assigned by hand to the article or if you're using the row number in your tracking sheet. Okay, that makes sense. So this might seem like kind of a nitty-gritty kind of question, but maybe also clarify potential confusion. How do we figure out how to number our articles? Um, so that's a great question. You can do it in several different ways. If you're doing it through a software program, sometimes it'll generate a number for you. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have, you know, articles 1 through 10 because the articles as they move through the process are being called down from a large number to a small number. So those articles might not be sequential. You might have some missing numbers. So you can continue using those numbers. It's really arbitrary as long as the team is all on the same page about how we're doing it. Um, if you eventually are able to sort your articles out by different levels, sometimes it's also helpful to put to group them by level and then give them a number based on that. So maybe level um, your level one articles are articles one through three, your level two articles are four through seven, et cetera, sort of moving down the list. Okay, so definitely a conversation among the team about how to number your articles. Right, there's no one right way to do it, but there's definitely some wrong ways to do it. <laughs> okay, that's good to know too. Um, so the next column is author date and title. Yeah, and this is actually an update from the previous tool. I think the previous one just had, um, we might have just had article number or maybe just the author. But we realized it was important to include the title for a couple reasons. Um, one of them is that a lot of times an author will have multiple publications on a certain subject, and even sometimes they'll have multiple publications within the same year. And so if I just have Johnson 2019, if Johnson and colleagues have written two articles in 2019, I'm not going to know which one's which if I don't have the title. It can also make it a little bit easier sometimes if people will end up writing um, the, like, the author's first name instead of their last name or sort of uh, moving around the name. And so just having more information about the article just makes it even more likely that you're going to be able to find it and not going to get confused um, between other similar names or articles written by the same group of people. Okay, that's good. I, I've also noticed sometimes when I'm looking at multiple articles in kind of the same subject area that many articles can have very similar, if not even the same titles. So knowing the date and the author can also help to differentiate from articles of a very similar name. Yeah, and it's just one of those things that's really easy to copy paste into the table that could end up saving you a ton of time in the end. Okay. Great. So next column is called type of evidence. 
So tell me about that. So this part is a little interesting because people, uh, all different people sort of interpret this prompt a little differently. Um, if you were sort of skipping ahead, if you look at the second to last column, that's where we are going to write our level as well as the quality of evidence. But some people end up putting the level into this bucket, into the type of evidence. And what we're really looking for here is a little bit more granular information. So we might know that it's a level three article, which we're going to note later in the table. But I want to know, is it a case control study? Is it a descriptive study? Is it a qualitative study? So this is where you're able to give more in-depth information beyond just the level, because I know that we've talked about before that there's multiple types of evidence in each level. So trying to be as granular as possible about what they actually did can be very helpful in this section. Yeah, and I can see here on pages two and three of this tool are the directions about how to use it, and there's even a little um, information item here in the type of evidence section that says exactly what you just said, like this is what you're really looking for. So that's going to be helpful for anyone filling out this tool. Exactly. And thanks for pointing out that there is um, sort of a cheat sheet again on the directions page on the second and third page of the tool. So if you're not quite sure what to put in there, skip forward and see what it's asking you to put. And that will be really helpful to give you a little bit of guidance. Okay, good. So the next column is population, size, and setting. Why do we want to know that? So this can be really important for several reasons. One of the big reasons is it's usually helpful when you're starting to get more towards the end of the EVP process to know if the articles that you included have a similar population and setting as your population. And so your EVP question might have been kind of broad, but so you're including maybe things that are both inpatient and outpatient, for example. But at some point, you might really want to say, well, I'm an inpatient facility, so maybe I really want to focus more in on my inpatient articles, or knowing that maybe that the outpatient articles might not be as transferable to what's going on with your current problem. So it's nice here to have it, again, it all collated into one place, where something was done, um, how many people were involved, um, and then the type of the setting. So is it inpatient or outpatient? Is it OB or emergency? Things like that. Occasionally, people get a little confused here because um, once in a while, you'll actually write not applicable in this section. So if, um, for example, you have a literature review and you know that it's applicable to your question, so you know that the, it's hitting your population and your intervention, it actually might be not applicable here because you're putting together multiple sources of information that aren't very specific about the population. Okay, that's good to know too. So the next column here is intervention. Can you explain what we're putting in these boxes in this column? Yeah, this is something that came out from, again, working with a lot of different people on different projects. And it doesn't always, because EBP questions can be so broad, not every single one of these prompts is necessarily going to fit really well for your, for your particular EBP um, issue. But when you're thinking about things that perhaps have multiple interventions, so if you're having a sort of maybe a question about best nursing practices for care of chest tubes, one of those questions might be about the dressing, whereas one of, another one might be about nurse discontinuation of the catheter. And so you might want to be, this is a place that you can more specifically write what exactly they're looking at, what intervention they're looking at, what variable they're looking at um, related to the question. So again, once you're, um, at the end of the project and you're maybe trying to group things together or decide, oh, well, something works really well for this intervention, but not that one. It's a little bit, it creates 
different layers for you to be able to sort the information to create greater insights than would be just available from looking at everything on a very high surface level. Okay. That that seems like a pretty helpful item there. And it seems like maybe you could, it can also help you to link it with your PICO question. Right. So if you end up putting an intervention in here that's way out of left field and doesn't actually relate to the eye of your PICO, you might have a sort of a hint that maybe this, this article doesn't, in fact, answer your question. Which we probably would have been able to determine previously when we were working in some of the other tools. But this is one of those last uh, last checks and balances maybe to make sure that you're using uh, appropriate articles. Yeah, for sure. And I'll tell you right now, there's plenty of times that articles sort of squeak by until the very one of the very last steps and you realize, wait a minute, this actually doesn't have the right population or this doesn't meet our inclusion criteria. And so these are all sort of like checks and balances throughout the process to help you determine if you actually need to exclude an article because it's not appropriate for your question. All right. That's excellent. All right. So we have a couple more columns to go here. And so this next one is titled Findings That Help Answer the EVP Question. Yeah, so this is sort of the magic column that really has the all of the information that you need to move forward on the next step of the process. These other columns are important, but this is sort of the one that's going to have those um, statements that really speak to your question. And this is also one of the hardest boxes to fill out because you want to provide enough information that your team is able to make an educated decision based on it and don't have to go to the source material, but you also don't want to include so much information that you haven't done sort of the critical thinking, clinical reasoning component, and you're actually making your team have to do that, but based on less information than is available in the article itself. So um, I like to give the example that writing something like article about falls is not as helpful as writing something like article showed a statistically significant improvement in fall rates when using non-slip blocks as compared to bed alarms. We know that the article is about falls, that's our question. It shouldn't be on this form at all if it wasn't about falls. But we want to have those couple sentences or statements that actually help us to understand what the takeaway was. And so if you think about this um, in terms of, like, if you read an article and you wanted to tell your colleague about it, what would be the couple things that you would tell them so that they would you be able to convey the interesting information that was applicable to them? And so whatever those couple sentences or statements are, that's what you would write in this box. Excellent. Okay. And that reminds me of something that we looked at in the research and the non-research evidence appraisal tools on the front pages of those, those, that top cover page, there was a section that says study findings that help answer the EBP question. Is this where that information from the appendices E and F might go? Exactly. So kind of depending on your particular process, whether you're going to do all your E's and your F's and then come to G and transpose the information, or if you're going to do an article appraisal and then as soon as you're done with it, transpose the information onto the collation sheet. Either way, a, a lot of that information is carried forward. So like the population, the um, the article number, the name, all those things, as well as the findings that answer the EVP question, that's really sort of a copy-paste from the article appraisal tool. Excellent. That's good to know. And also helpful to for you to say that, you know, different teams could go about their process a little bit differently. You can do like one by one by one by one or kind of do some things kind of together at the same time. Yeah, you can sort of do like an iterative process for your 
moving back and forth between the two, or you can just keep it really um, cut and dry and just appraise and then just summarize. Okay. All right. So the next column here is called measures used. Tell me about that one. So this can, again, be helpful if you're trying to start to sort the information sort of on the back end. And so this is where you're going to write down what were they what were they gathering data about. So, for example, if you are looking at pain, what pain skills did they use? Did they use a behavioral pain scale or did they use the 0 to 10, um, uh, 10 out of 10 pain scale that we see a lot of times in the medical record? If you're looking at anxiety, which anxiety skills did they use? Maybe you're looking at vital signs. So which vital signs did they use? Maybe one article uses um, blood pressure and another one uses temperature. And so, again, this helps you to determine if the measures were consistent across all the articles, which can sometimes let you sort of um, put things together and create a larger picture based on that one measure, or if they're all kind of looking at different things, meaning that you would not necessarily be able to compare apples to apples. Got it. And so this next column, limitations, I feel like I might know how this one works. Because <laughs> at the end of most articles, there's a section that talks about the limitations of their study. Is this where that kind of information goes? Yes. And it's also where your limitations go. So sometimes people have asked me, is this the limitations of the authors I've identified? Or are these the limitations that I have identified as a reviewer? And the answer is both. So it's pretty easy to go in and sort of copy-paste the limitations of the article that the authors themselves have provided, but it's beyond just that. So if you gave this article a B instead of an A, why did you, what were the reasons you didn't give it an A? Um, if you gave it maybe um, you're bordering on a C, but you kept it a B, because remember, Cs aren't going to make it to this stage. But why did you not, why was it almost a C? So basically all of the shortcomings that you're seeing within the article, in addition to the shortcomings that they themselves have identified, are going to go in this box. That's great to know. I get to have an input on this particular one. Sure. All right. So evidence level and quality, this um, second to last column on the on the grid here. Um, so I'm thinking that this is probably coming from the front page of those appendices ENF as well. Exactly. So you're going to put the um, number one, two, three, four, five, and then you're going to put an A, a B, or a C. One of the um, important things about this is that for the next step, you're going to be synthesizing the information based on levels. And so you want to put the level in so that you can eventually group them all together. So all the level ones are going to go together, level twos, level threes, et cetera. And so sometimes people will do this process in a Word document, but sometimes they can also use like an Excel spreadsheet as a collation tool. So it's same header as you're just using a different program. And what I like to do if I'm using Excel is to make a one column for level and then another column for quality. And then I can just sort my Excel spreadsheet um, to go from numbers uh, descending order, so from one to five, and then it's going to automatically put my ones together, my twos, my threes, my fours, my fives. So it's just a way to help sort the information for the next step. That sounds like a handy tip. Sure. All right. And this last column is the notes to team. Tell me more about this one. So this is something that we added on in this version of the book. And this is um, a place for the team to put anything that they've all decided is another important element to note. So, for example, if you're looking at gamification of nursing education, you might, in your PICO question, have kept it very broad and you included both pre-licensure and post-licensure nurses. But in the very end, you might want to say, well, let me look more granularly at the pre-licensure. Maybe the gamification works great for them, but not for the post-licensure. And so this is a place that you can put 
um, notes that the team has all decided are important pieces of information to capture. Um, similarly, we did an evidence-based practice project one time on nursing report cards, and so we wanted to capture if the nursing report cards were providing information about documentation or were they providing information about a skill, because it seemed to be a little bit more um, beneficial depending on the type of information it was providing. So again, it's just a way to provide additional information that might let you categorize or group the information at the end that would provide greater insights into that weren't available just from looking at the high-level data related to the article. Okay, and so now we have the whole table filled out. Now what? What's next? So this is a great um, opportunity to really talk about the ways that we can use technology to make things better or easier for our team. And so in theory, we could actually print this out and we could all be handwriting onto this tool and passing it around and filling it in. Um, a lot of times people are just sort of filling it in on their own computer, but this is a great time when you might want to use something like Teams um, or Google Docs to create a shared document for people to put their information in so that at the very end, instead of trying to pull together 10 unique tools, everyone has deposited their information into one communal tool and then um, one person can kind of go through, clean it up, edit it, and then you're ready for your next step, which is synthesis. Okay. that's That sounds like a really good idea as well. Is there anything else about this tool that you think is important for us to know, Maddie? Um, just remember that when you're filling this out, you are trying to be a team player. And so it does take um, some higher level thinking probably, you know, um, stepping back and analyzing your information a little bit so that you're providing information that's helpful to the team and isn't asking the team to have to go back to the article itself and gather information that you haven't provided. So remember that you're sort of doing the, you're doing your future self a favor and you're doing the team a favor by providing succinct and relevant information that you've already sort of digested versus copying and pasting a huge chunk of the article and asking the team to do it for you. Okay. Good to know. All right. So that is, we're going to wrap up this um, discussion about Appendix G, the Individual Evidence Summary Tool. For now, thank you for joining us, Maddie. Thank you. And I uh, just want you to know that you can reach out to the Center for Nursing Inquiry through the Hopkins intranet, hopkinsmedicine.org, slash nursing, slash center nursing inquiry. You can Google us on the Internet. You can also email us at nursinginquiry at jhmi.edu and talk to you again soon.